Hi everyone, this is Hita for the In Common podcast. Today I spoke with Aditya Ramesh, a presidential fellow in environmental history at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. In our conversation, we spoke about racially constructed disease ecologies in the metropole and the colonies and the subjectivities of what disease represents in these varied contexts. We spoke about how particularly in India, caste or the local social hierarchy was a dominant factor in the way diseases were experienced, responded to and managed. We touched upon the evolving ways in which the archive has begun to be reinterpreted and how those reimaginations have begun to open new doors for people to engage with historical perspectives. We also reflected a bit on how urban planning and environmental governance in cities has been highly intertwined with the way cities have experienced disease historically as well as the public health discourses that emerged as a result of those experiences. I really enjoyed speaking with Aditya especially since we both work around Bangalore and because I've recently been looking into disease ecologies myself. It's nice to have you here and I think just to start off with I was reading some of your work and and I saw that it touches upon say the interface between the human and the non-human through disease histories imperial legacies and the relationship between urban metabolisms and urban planning and and how people's relationships have changed over time with nature and just to kick us off could you tell us a bit about what got you interested and what you, what got you interested in this topic really and more broadly how did you get into academia um thank you hita first of all for inviting me and it's a pleasure to be here and i think i've learned a lot from your work first so it's great to be in conversation with you and i've read your work over the years i think maybe 2 3 years so it's really nice i think and hopefully we can take this conversation to other places um responding to your questions the first one what brought me to the question of disease ecology so i've always been a historian largely of the environment i think i've been working on it for the last 5 6 years phd post phd and what brought me firstly i think to the question of disease was the intersection between water and disease i figured pretty early on in my archival research my research was on rivers in southern india and i figured pretty early on that one of the key things for colonial administrations or technocracies anywhere in the world to build large dams on water bodies was to engage in some sense with forested landscapes with wat- watery landscapes and engineers had to or technocrats had to engage with these pretty varied landscapes of water forests jungles and in doing this they both encountered unfamiliar environments and i think people like david arnold have written quite extensively about this but i found research in the 1920s is that there was a link between damming and malaria that dams led to canals which led to stagnant waters of different kinds and then i was able to go into things like the ford foundation archives the rockefeller archive which is where typically much of the material on malaria i think the rockefeller archive for instance set up an entire disease infrastructure um, research institute in southern india in the kaveri delta region but also in madras city so that it was this link between water and disease so then i was able to take that slightly into my new work which is on cities and the environment and i started to then rethink the ways in which water actually operates in these dense environments these were not unfamiliar environments these were very familiar everyday environments um things like water pots things like ropes that you used to draw water out of wells things like wells themselves things like tanks something that you've worked on extensively all of these things are watery spaces and in some sense i think disease was so closely connected to them because it's bodily in some sense 
people consume it, but it also flows across spaces between different parts of what you understand as one part of the city and another part of the city. But water doesn't really respect those kind of boundaries, which can be policed. You can police humans one way or another, but it's very difficult to police something like water. And then disease carries and disease then transforms urban space. So I think this is what brought me to the question of disease in urban spaces. But I also, I think, have started to think about this very, very differently in different kinds of environments that I think I've borrowed a lot from Christos Linteris' work, which is to say that actually there's kind of, there's an episteme of disease in different cities and different spaces. Different diseases have different infrastructures that are associated with them. Different diseases have different, completely different trajectories and outcomes depending on their conditions, but also depending on the kinds of investigations that are done, depending on how strong labs are, depending on how strong field epidemiology is. And you understand then data differently from different places to then piece together what disease means in itself. So water was an entry point, but I think for me now this has gone just beyond that to actually understanding the episteme and the heart of disease. What does it mean for people to be ill? What does it mean to try and cure them? What does it mean to understand disease in different places and different ways? So I think that is how I'll probably respond to this question. Thanks. And there's several questions that I, that, that, you know, come to mind when I was listening to that, but for the sake of people who listen to this podcast, a lot of whom are not probably very familiar with political ecology and, you know, that kind of literature, could you, could you explain what you meant or could you unpack the term that you used earlier, the idea of technocracies? What do you mean when you say technocracies? What, what does technology then signify in, in such uh, spaces? Okay, so I think I'll try and get to this question in a few ways. So let me start with my own sort of research, which actually traces the process of technocracy. Which So I worked, as I said, you know, on large dams. I worked on rivers in South India. I worked specifically on one river that probably connects, you know, where you're from and where I'm from. I think you're from Karnataka. I'm from Tamil Nadu. So the river sort of flows. Yeah, so it flows across these two spaces. And the technocracy that I was tracing was how did engineering as a discipline or people who are engineers who considered themselves irrigation engineers, right? In the late 19th century, there were a whole series of irrigation engineers. And largely what they were interested in doing is to try and improve rivers, which is to say that how do we make land more productive using certain, um, using the river in, in one specific kind of way, which was through canal irrigation was the idea, but also perhaps tank irrigation, other forms of irrigation. But by the mid 20th century, actually, you get a whole series of people who are interested now in the river. These might be urban planners, these might be industrialists, these might be industrial planners, these are the electrical engineers, these are agricultural scientists, people as varied as entomologists, mycologists, paddy specialists. So you get a whole field of people who are actually interested in the river, right? And each of them offer a kind of lens or an expertise through which they're understanding the river in this particular case. So in one way, the answer to your question of what is a technocracy is actually that you start to get a discipline in the 20th century. People like Timothy Mitchell have really worked on this to a very, very um, vast extent is that they understand nature or they understand natural resources from different kinds of lenses, but each of it is to try and add to economic life or productivity or output in some form or way. And they most of these disciplinary frameworks or what I'm calling technocracy here, believe that actually that single way is possibly the best way of adding to forms of output. Um, so it's it comes with a certain sense of hubris, it's especially in the 20th century, but it also comes with, it transforms as it encounters new environments of different kinds. So that's 
one answer to what is a technocracy i think yeah 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 i think that's 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 interesting because then it also raises questions of how technologies then permeate into uh, the governance of non-human spaces so to speak but the next question that i was also thinking of when i was when i was uh, listening to you was this idea of what disease means and it relates a lot to the historical component of your work which is i mean so i've been working a lot around disease uh, ecologies as well right now so currently i'm reading this report that ronald ross wrote uh, before he started working on his favorite topic malaria he started he was he was stationed in bangalore in india and he was working as a cholera i mean he was working in an area that was rife with cholera so there was this report that he wrote about the prevalence of cholera in in the region and throughout the entire thing cholera was posited as a native disease you know so the idea that you have a certain subjectivity associated with a disease became very interesting to me and i was just wondering what your thoughts are on this whole idea of i mean just could you ex- unpack what what you meant when you said what disease means what are the subjectivities involved i think that's exactly it right exactly what you said that disease has perhaps and i'm not a medical historian i think i really look at it more specifically in particular kinds of environments so one way of thinking about the broad landscape of disease was even the institutions that are with us today one way of thinking about it is to think about institutions that are with us even today like the london school of tropical medicine or the liverpool school of tropical medicine mm-hmm. now these are lands these are institutes which are premised on the idea that there's a landscape that's different from europe and therefore this landscape needs a whole new approach to disease so in other words what they were inscribing was that there was no singular uniform form of human that you can understand in terms of disease right yeah and this is something that actually you can take into account even modern day medicine right context is so important environments are so important but the idea of the tropics is a vast broad largely decontextualized setup that emerged in the 19th century or eight, late 18th 19th century so that's i guess the broad answer to your your question that i would think about but i think there's much more specific things that are happening with diseases such as cholera diseases such as plague and people like randall packard many people have argued and it's so stark in the case of south africa that if you think about diseases such as the plague or there were reasons why that these became native diseases they were not just native diseases but they affected most largely places that were you know the urban where the urban poor lived um because for instance in the case of cholera what you find is that there's also famine in bangalore during that that time and people don't have access to regular supplies of water so people are drinking water through in ditches they're drinking water in from open spaces wherever water is collected and cholera is a waterborne disease it's not like british officials or indian upper caste um uh, men and women are drinking water from these spaces right it's only people who don't have any water who go and access these spaces so it's kind of inscribed in the socio economic but also the caste inequalities so this is the ways in which i suppose more specifically diseases are constructed as native and non native to a large extent another thing that that struck me when i was reading the cholera reports was how night soil was racially constructed i mean so there's this entire page long descriptions of public latrines in in the cantonment region and within the cantonment so so for listeners who do not know about bangalore bangalore 
was governed into two different zones. There was uh, the cantonment, which was the British occupied part of the region. And there was the Peite or the native city, which was the native part of the city. So Ronald Ross's report that I'm talking about was focused on the cantonment region, which also had a small section that was occupied by natives. So he was kind of making the distinction between this native part of the cantonment and the British part of the cantonment and public latrines within that. And he was talking about how night soil from the British part of the cantonment was collected by native night soil collectors, obviously a very caste dynamic to it as well. People of the lowest of lowest castes were the ones employed to do this job, ghastly job, if I might add. And they were told that they could dispose of this night soil at will. Whereas the night soil that was collected by the people living, I mean, collected in the region of the native population, that is, you know, the the poorer parts of the city, that was disposed of by the municipality and they made a profit out of it. And I found that very interesting because when you think of the flow of resources in that region, then that means that a certain amount of night soil, the municipality had literally no idea of the flows. These people who collected it could either have disposed of it in a market for it compost or whatever, or they could just have been dumped into the nearest water source, further increasing the risk of cholera in the native part of the cantonment. I mean, I I was just, yeah, it it was just fascinating to see how an entire section of society got blamed, so to speak, for passing on the disease when actually it was a question of urban flows of resources, which is also something that your work has touched upon. Yeah, I think, I mean, to sort of zoom out a little bit i think you're absolutely right and this happened in so many different cities across um, india and south asia but south africa where municipalities often set up what were known as sewage farms and you know sewage would be sold to these farms possibly and they were harvested and they used to make some amount of profit from in these sewage farms but i think i mean more specifically that i really think i mean what you touched upon that this was this was deep kind of caste work that was happening um that this caste work was taken for granted both you know in native parts of the city but also in 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 british cantonments which is where um, much of it happened i think the broader uh, question of disease and public health that emerged from this kind of bacteriological city as you know people like matthew gandhi have termed it is that actually there were huge kind of transformations that occurred um, due to these um, diseases or the proliferation of diseases, or even one could argue the construction of these diseases, the way in which they were construed and constructed, um, that eventually led to very sound drainage systems for some parts of the city, or water, um, pipe water systems for some parts of the city, and led to nothing in other parts. So it was continuously this question of formal and informalized, if you want to even call it that, that marked the very beginnings of these modern systems um, to deal with some of this or urban planning. It led to some very planned environments where, and it led to some which were um, continuously auto-constructed from the very beginning. So there was no, there was no real plans put in for drainage or water systems. These kind of informal caste legacies continued then continuously or they were formalized rather but they continued even beginning from when these systems were actually put in place so but to even deal with these kind of problems it was a very small sort of um, obsession with the tax paying um, property logic that defined where any kind of system to um, deal with some of these problems um, like waste uh, like water uh, would actually emerge from so 
in other words i think they they kind of emerged from a practice of inequity which i think again mirrors victor a lot of what happened in victorian england as well and people like jacob steer williams have written yeah which is which was my next point that a lot of these systems did not emerge in isolation in what in the colonies in any of the colonies that they came about by specific lived experiences of of victorian england in their own hometown so to speak and how they dealt with the black death or you know uh, other disease epidemics that had that had uh, occurred in their region and it kind of raises this question of how ideas get sort of transplanted from one context into another without without really looking at local ecologies and so on uh, and something that kind of resonates even in in urban planning of today wouldn't you think yeah i think that's that's very right i think that the ways in which much of this was transferred i suppose the what kind of puzzles me is that actually there were lots of local studies that were done it wasn't as if planners were not studying or engineers were not studying these environments that they were studying them quite deeply and it's from their studies that actually historians like me are able to get quite a um um quite quite a uh, what's the word Qu- quite a mm-hmm. dense archive of material to actually work with and go through and understand what was happening but it seems like every time the end goal was to fix or retrofit something onto um, something that already existed a system that already existed and was this continuous act of retrofitting that seems to be happening in colonial engineering which i don't quite understand why there was never an alternate imaginary or for instance even in your work on tanks i think there are spaces where things do open up a little bit um for instance in the case of tanks in bangalore there is an argument by some medics who say that you know why don't we introduce frogs and why don't we introduce fish into these tanks they might act or certain plants into tanks they might act as cleansing forces but these are very quickly done away these ideas are very quickly done away with they're not investigated possibly because of a transference but i think actually there is something then to be st- said about a minor voice um or voices in the archive that actually differ from a kind of dominant broad understanding of how do we implement these systems of modernity that possibly originated in the colonies or oh, sorry in the metropole onto the colonies and so much of it happened in london for instance the thames embankment the thames embankment is a very interesting example it was the construction of an urban river it was the creation of an urban river there was a lot of speculation around the land around the river and the following the 1870s this became something where leisure practices were enshrined it became a region where housing became quite expensive of course there were also slums it was also an industrial region parts of it were an industrial region but what it did was that it introduced this broad imaginary of what a river should be right it should be a tidal river it should flow somewhere into the sea possibly it should not have sandbars so something that i studied that i'm thinking about in madras city right now with a really polluted river the koam river actually what me and another historian bhavani raman what we are finding is that the def- definition of river was continuously changing and evolving that actually in the early 18th century this could was called an estuary and a tank and a large pond in different places a marsh in some places but all that changes by the mid 20th century when this whole system is understood as a riverine system rather than this pretty complex strange hybrid spaces of different kinds of body so in in a sense it gets constructed as what um it did in the metropole so the ideas are transferred the so superimposed and eventually because of a lack of funding they retrofitted in very bad poor ways 
where you get then nothing that looks like what it did in London, but you get something that's a completely different formation, ecological formation in the colonies, I suppose. I mean, England's river systems are, are fascinating. Like I live, I live in Sheffield and you have several places here where you can just put your head near one of those grated, whatever those things are called, the grates, I think they're called, or the drainage things. And you can actually hear water from some spring flowing underneath. And you just, I mean, it's, it's just a massive surreal experience really for me to, to know that, hey, I'm actually walking over a river that used to live and thrive in this region, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And also the ideas that go into what a river is, right? I mean, even today, when you look at river redesigning projects here, there is often a focus on aesthetics and leisure as opposed to anything else that a river might be useful for, which got transplanted almost exactly into colonial regimes, into the colonies, so to speak, because when you look at tanks, like my work has done, or when you look at other rivers, the focus was always, let's let's create a place of beauty. Let's create a thing of beauty. Anything that mars the beauty, let's avoid it. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I totally get to where you come from when you said that. And the Kuam is very interesting because I think my whole introduction to this idea of water systems came from, I think, some casual statement where I realized that the Kuam was not seen as a river by most urban residents, but that it was seen as a drain, a drain that carries waste. So, Yeah, I mean, the Kuam is very interesting because exactly it's used as a pejorative. The term in itself signifies in urban parlance a drain. But having said that, in official reports, it's always classified as a river. It's never classified. It has parts of a drainage system and it always had parts of the city which drained into it and that continued but it's always continuously classified as a river it's, it's very rarely classified as a drain so that's one part of it the second is the aesthetic question to me is very interesting and i think this doesn't really bother people or doesn't at least not in official urban planning discourse until ni- the 1930s 40s but after the 1930s 40s when the, when the logic of improvement starts to shift on to something like development aesthetic becomes something that's really key to so and these terms right river beautification so initially it starts with the term of beautification then it starts with how do we make world-class cities and rivers are fundamental to world-class cities and of course then there's a vernacular that's attached to it in the case of the kuam it's singara chennai and singara chennai means you know beautiful chennai and how do we make the river a central part of that and i found people like asher gertner who wrote a book um called Rule by Aesthetic, really useful to think through these problems as to why aesthetic emerges as a key mobilizing force during some moments, but then it loses its traction. And what are the various organizations that actually allow that to emerge, right? Allow aesthetic to emerge. So courts, for instance, where you wouldn't necessarily think that a court would be interested in governing a city through aesthetic, it becomes then an ex what should be an executive function slowly starts to emerge as a judicial function where even courts are interested in evicting slum dwellers because of aesthetic, right? So it becomes part of a kind of urban um, zeitgeist or urban way of thinking that cities should be beautiful in particular kind of ways. And that shift really starts to happen in the 1950s when urban planning is instituted in, in India. You have planners um, you know, such as people who are planning Chandigarh 
planning other kinds of cities um, who start to really think of this question of aesthetic as very important to the urban dweller in India. I was going back to something else that you spoke about, which is, and I think this leads us neatly into the idea of methods as well, which is what does the archive leave out or what voices are best represented in the archive? And it might be useful, A, for our listeners to talk, to hear you talk a bit about using history as a method. How do you get the data? Where do you get the data? That kind of thing, the challenges, but also this whole idea of what the archive does and what it does not. Uh, because I think that's that's quite fascinating uh, when we think of interpreting histories from very indirect sources, I might add. Okay, so I think there are two, three ways to think about this. Um, and the archive is continuously something that omits depending on what the dominant force that's creating the archive wants to represent, right? And I think that's the most obvious way to start off with. But I suppose even in the case of, let me start with the case of something like a river, right? Now, how do you trace a river if it's not understood as a river? How do you trace the history of a modern object that never was, for instance. So that might be one way of actually thinking about an omission, right? So for instance, if I'm tracing the history of a Kuom, the Kuom River, and it's not actually a river until a specific kind of date, then I have to actually try and look for alternative terms, alternative lexicons to try and trace the water body in some sense. So that, so that is a challenge that you really have to think about in terms, especially in terms of nature or, or um, ecology, in terms of non-human life, how do you follow these across the archive? It's very difficult to actually get a singular trace of them from X period to X period because the way in which they're spoken about a particular space is being spoken about or a particular non-human is being spoken about changes pretty drastically, I think, largely. But the other big omission, I think, and this would be obvious to most listeners and yourself, is that these are largely dominant voices that the archive is representing. So the author very often of colonial reports, post-colonial reports are investigators of different kinds. And it depends on the kinds of material that you use. You sometimes do get first-person narrative from people um, who you would consider the urban poor, people who are not from dominant caste backgrounds. Uh, in the Indian case, dominant class backgrounds in the Victorian British case. You do get these voices, but even these voices are refracted through somebody who's an interviewer. So these are not voices of people's thoughts, but necessarily, but people who are interviewing. For instance, the Plague Commission is a really comprehensive set of reports about the plague in British India. But what you do get is an interviewer asking people questions from different walks of life about how you experience the plague. So those questions in many ways are leading. Those questions are tailored to what sometimes what the state wants to hear. But even if it's not what the state necessarily wants to hear, it's not that you're getting first-person testimony. That's something that's very, very difficult to access. I think people have access to it. There's a lot more work now going on, I think, to recover voices um, through vernacular archives, um, working with home archives, for instance. People like Ram, Ra Ram Narayan Rawat who work I think he works at the University of Delaware. There's a whole book on how to recover archives from the home. Um, and he's worked on Dalit households in North India and actually recovered um, archives that people have recorded for the last 100, 200 years, whether it's property documents. So these are very different archives from state archives. So I think the omissions are, are 
are huge and i think we have to kind of whether we're investigating humans or whether we're investigating non-humans but also there are ways to get at these questions get at these voices even within the official record but even outside the official record i think people have done work on this for decades so this is not anything new um but i do think that the non-human poses new kinds of challenges to actually following animals to following natural environments in several kinds of ways uh whether you know the way in which the archive speaks about them changes over a century or whether they appear as flashes in the archive so they're not continuous but they appear very intensely in a few moments so that you can trace them in a few moments within the archive but you can't trace them continuously and that's something that you have to be comfortable with in terms of method but i also think you know with new kinds of digital technologies and so on we're able to do new things that we weren't able to do for instance we're able to date um, using carbon dating how old certain things are we're able to georeference maps um, we're able to use oral histories more freely now um, rather than be stuck to the method of just using the archive so i think things have become slightly more fluid in disciplinary terms people are experimenting with different kinds of methods which is something that's definitely very very welcome at least according to me yeah absolutely something else that that struck out for me in this conversation was the idea of the archive itself and how the idea of the archive seems to be changing over time i have a colleague at sheffield who's looking at the city as an archive and therefore that gives a lot lot of credence to using methods like walking through a city to discover its history for example and do you have any thoughts on really how the idea of the archive has changed over time and what that really means for historians like us who well uh, i'm not a historian i do not know what to call myself but for the sake of simplicity historians like us to uh, who are studying these intersections between the environment culture disease um, and so on yeah i think two things i think first is for me at least i've been thinking about this a little bit i think this is sort of reflective of a broader moment where i don't think disciplinary boundaries i think are eroding in the face of and this is a political moment right i think it's a kind of moment of a pandemic of climate change and actually i think a lot of people have discovered and and people are starting to understand i mean people have done interdisciplinary multidisciplinary work for a long time but actually these boundaries are eroding much faster than they did previously i think what was disciplinary gatekeeping especially in the western academy is slowly falling apart a little bit and this according to me is a very very good thing that people are talking across disciplines and this fundamentally then destabilizes what the meaning of an archive is right and i think the archive it has always had multiple meanings if you go to the british library and you go and use an archive there it's very different from using archives that i've used in state state archives in india or district archives in india right one is a completely searchable on everything is online you get everything within one hour the other one is about building relationships is about politics um, there's a lot of internal po- it's a government institution ultimately with government jobs people are stratified different castes to different kinds of work in that archive in itself um, and it still exists those that politics still exists and so i think it's always been very very different that to actually eke out information and think about that archive and what it can tell you whereas this archive and what can can tell you is very different but what you're talking about in terms of the city as an archive or the home as an archive to our, to practices that are now emerging um for instance as you said methods like walking right and i think i think you wrote such a um, wonderful article about that so i i guess the point the i mean the i suppose the point is that it's becoming a much more like a palimpsest sort of approach where 
there i mean even fragmented archives i think students are doing so much work now of actually collecting and creating different kinds of collections so from in the last 30 40 years the practice of archiving has radically changed that communities who previously wouldn't have thought of archiving at all are uh, continuously archiving now so this is i teach some of this stuff we teach quite a interesting course in in the department that i work in in manchester called the manchester history workshop and the kinds of archives that you find today um, for instance from 70s 80s etc right like it might be a random organization of women who bangladeshi women who are stitching at home but they're able to record there and people think that it's interesting something that if you look to the late 19th century no one would have found it interesting or worth their while to go and record it and that's now emerging and so you can find so many of these little minor voices that are emerging within cities and i think it's happening more and more even in the, in countries in the global south now and i think so the idea of the archive is, is radically shifting um, in some ways it's not like you couldn't uncover voices previously but you had to work much harder and it was it wasn't understood in some senses legitimate right something like walking landscapes and writing histories from material objects um, and and speculating so to some extent Uh, not taking a very defined disciplinary setup where you're saying that oh you know this and sometimes even i struggle to get out of that framework because of my training but i think the more you get out of that framework the more you take risks and say something that possibly is not 100% foolproof and more more and more people i think are doing that and taking risks and um speculating but and also then there is a politics to that kind of writing which is not safe writing to say that oh you know my period is between 1800 to 1920 and that's that's all i'm going to tell you about i can't tell you about 1920 what happens in 1921 that you say no actually there are kind of legacies that one can you know not to be presentist but there are legacies that one can um, mirror that one can think about um, that have effects on the present and a lot of it is because of our political moment whether uh, that's my reading at least whether it's climate change whether it's the pandemic whether it's black the black lives matter uh, movement that has really affected campuses and disciplines so i think people are really experimenting and taking risks which is very very welcome according to me yeah no absolutely i think it's it's absolutely welcome and it helps people uh, like me who have got no formal disciplinary training in history to to sort of you know just experiment with the methods that we use and you know just go for it i mean i would if i potentially if i was trained as a historian i would never have thought of doing some of the things that i've done uh, had i stuck to the very disciplinary holds over the i mean i still remember having this conversation at a3 where i did my phd about the idea of historiography and how much it matters and then being very troubled because i have literally no idea of the historiography of the kind of work that i do but but i do know that the past matters in terms of past dependencies uh, that emerge into the present so to speak and then i remember having this conversation with harini nagendra who was my phd supervisor and um something she said always stayed with me she asked me to look at what my frame was which is am i a historian trying to study the environment or am i an a person studying the environment through a historical frame and that really makes a big difference in the way you approach the problem and the way you try to interpret the kind of the data that you have and the sources that you use to get the data from uh, which is which is yeah fascinating i was going back to some of our conversations that we had just now about about you know the subjectivities involved in in understanding disease and the reason i was circling back to that is we're talking a lot about subjectivity today of what the archive means what what the practice of history or looking at history is uh, how it's evolving and so on 
And I was kind of wondering about the subjectivities that in that were involved in environmental governance uh, as a process in reflection of some of these changing ideas of what this disease meant. Uh, and if you had any thoughts on that. Wow. Okay. I think, I mean, firstly, that's a very interesting question. And I'll just come back to that. Just going on just a little bit about the question of historiography, right? I think it's very interesting. And I think it kind of stems from the legacy of the discipline a little bit. Uh, and I think maybe listeners will, might be interested or might not. From the 70s onwards, there's a kind of pretty tight notion of what constitutes historiography, how, and that is fundamentally a gatekeeping exercise, right? What is historiography that you have to build on something that someone else has said in the past, and then you try and make your own arguments in different ways. And that's that's fine to a certain extent. But if you look at the Indian context, for instance, there were certain communities, certain groups, largely upcast men who were from the left, um, who captured that space of historiography in the 70s and 80s, um, maybe subaltern studies after that. The 80s, these became defining frames through which you can write history or any history has to be written, right? And I think these are shackles that actually are breaking now um, with kind of different histories emerging from different parts of, in this case, you know, India where I work, but I think it's kind of world over uh, with black history, with Dalit history. And I think these destabilize those kind of canons and formations who actually or interdisciplinarity um, in your in your case, right? And these destabilize the canons. And I think it's again a sort of, for me, this is, um, this is a kind of reflection of a much um, broader political moment where gatekeepers are becoming fewer and fewer and it troubles some people, but I think it excites a lot of other people. It certainly excites me. Your second question is a very interesting question, environmental governance and disease. And this is something that I have been trying to very, very recently study. I haven't really thought about it too much, but I will say this. It's something that emerges, I think, 1940s or so is when I've seen it. I've seen the term environmental hygiene employed, right? I don't think I've seen it in the archive. Before that, hygiene is, is a fairly long established 19th century concept. But there's a proliferation of institutes, there's a proliferation of journals from the 1940s onwards, which I'm tracing now in addition to some of the other stuff. But they start to really think about how to govern not just disease as thought through um, medical frameworks, but disease thought through much broader what could con be considered to be ecological frameworks, right? And this mirrors a much bigger shift as well, I suppose, from a British medical perspective where in the 19th century, with the state that we were talking about, with cholera, with tuberculosis, all of this, you have big disciplines emerging. Epidemiology emerges, virology emerges, bacteriology emerges. All of these are very foundational defining disciplines that have some component in the field, some component in the lab. But with American public health in the 1930s, 40s, and they take over places like Rockefeller Foundation, etc. So they actually set up field stations where malaria is, you know, malaria is a disease of ecology, possibly sleeping sickness in Africa is a disease of ecology, or these are considered diseases of ecology. And then governing environments, context environments rather than the tropics in a much broader frame start to become really important. And we can think of this in different kinds of ways. And I don't think the work has been done on this and is actually quite, it's quite urgent and quite important. For instance, if we think of co the coal belts and coal mining towns, right, um, in, in post-colonial India from the 50s to the 70s, these were huge infrastructural trans transformations. You think of whether it was the Tatars or whether you think of the Indian uh, I'm forgetting the name of the institute, but uh, the coal, the, the 
oh, I think it was called Coal India, which was a big public sector company that managed coal. The Damodar Valley Corporation, which had towns in Ranigans, which were mining coal. Many of these had serious implications for work, work the working class, people who were working there in terms of health. Um, and these were investigated in the contemporary moment by unions. They were investigated by doctors. But actually, we haven't really got a longitudinal perspective on what this has done to working life, right? And that's just one particular example of environmental governance as such. You can think of other examples. You can We can even think of the city of Bangalore. Just the other day, I was at the London School of Tropical um, Hygiene and Medicine, where, the again, the Ross Institute archives, there's this new term right called occupational health um, and occupational health is tracing the history of workers in these kind of urban environments choir choir um public sector units across bangalore yeah. um, plantation pl- plantations across bangalore uh, next to bangalore again and all of these are very very specific kinds of ecologies uh, very and an ecology is not just in terms of oh water air etc but they're very material right like these the substances release um, certain other sub- substances that are then inhaled or ingested by workers and then governing these very specific environments especially in that age of industrialization second industrialization third industrialization if you will in global south context becomes really really important um, so i think these probably are are the two broad ways that I'm thinking about environmental governance and disease, but there's certainly other ways. And they provoke, I think, bigger questions for for research and for um, theory more broadly, but we can discuss that later. Something uh, along the lines of environmental governance that slightly differs from the way you're looking at it is also the way that I am looking at environmental governance, which is, so you have a whole bunch of diseases that dominated urban planning in various regions, some of them were waterborne, some of them were vermin-borne and all of that. And and what that meant was specific decisions taken in relation to urban planning, which involved, okay, let's oil the wells, which was which was something that I found very interesting. Why, yeah, I mean, uh, from an ecological point of view, why would you spread oil on wells? But yeah, they would oil the wells or they would they would shut down lakes uh, or they would build, you know, cover lakes over with the over the fear of malaria or, you know, uh, other other diseases. And that led to a certain rhetoric of urban planning, so to speak, which is environmental resources didn't were not seen as performing ecological functions, but rather that, you know, they were seen as something to be repurposed in lieu of the disease threat that they pose. And that that was also something that I was I found very interesting because how how urban planning emerged as a discourse that relates very much to how we look to control and tame nature. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and it depends every single disease right in the late 19th century early 20th century has has precisely this implication for urban planning you can think of soil and plague right wet soil was seen as a space where the plague bacilli used to rest and mutate and so people who had houses who that had soil on it which was just raised christos linteris has written on how soil became something that scientists continuously investigated right but while they investigated there was a form of urban planning that was happening which was raising of houses right so and and as you rightly said in the case of malaria it was oiling of these different wells and so every single then every disease um, starts to have different outcomes in terms of how do you plan space and i think they kind of coincided in not very well thought out ways and not very well so and i think i mean that late it, it it's been quite transformational um, more generally but i'm 
but i think now i'm starting to get interested in what's happening in a later period as well in terms of environmental governance and how you think about environments or, or ecology is not just in ecological terms but they're also something that exists in terms of resources for people to use but they're also something that exists within the body itself that it's not separated then from the human body in some sense um, that a lot of these environments start to take long term effects 30 40 years and then governing environments also becomes central to governing human bodies um, become central to governing non human bodies because i think these things start to bleed into each other after a point and and so that's something that i'm very very interested in investigating the history of smallpox is like one of those classic examples right of of exactly what you're mentioning right now uh, at least in my mind uh, though i'm no expert on smallpox histories yeah so that 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 that's that's a very interesting point that you make um and something that also relates to that is the subjectivities of who made those decisions you had people like you know people med- chief medical officers i think they were called stationed at some of these colonial outposts who wrote detailed reports but the way they percolated into decisions that were made around urban planning reflected imaginaries of what the urban should look like which in in the colonial period was largely a reflection of british values of what technology means centric circling back to your original ideas of technocracies and and things and and really how that percolated down into everyday lives of people yeah i was yeah it's just it's just a big minefield and i was just yeah curious as to how your work has sort of addressed some of these things as well because i i was reading the paper that you wrote about everyday lives i mean i think you're you're right and it's a very difficult question to to answer in general right and i think partially why it's a difficult question is because the nature of governance in colonial post colonial cities has been fairly haphazard it's been something where decisions are not easily communicated decisions are acted upon fairly arbitrarily in different ways and the archive itself the municipal archive is something that's a very very shifting beast as far as i've seen it so actually to get at these cities is not an easy it's not an easy question and you're right i mean these are, these are experts who are making these decisions like chief medical officers for instance but also people who are the head of the municipality and and the municipal commissions and each of them have a different kind of structure right so and and it changes over time so from the 1920s you see more and more indians but propertyed indians native native what the british would call natives who start to become fairly powerful uh, they're usually property caste upper caste men who become fairly powerful in these municipalities and then they start to take certain decisions but their decisions very often i mean if you look at the um the record of some of the municipal uh, council meetings and i've done this in the case of madras one of the key concerns for many Uh, of these men is when they're living next to a polluted river is how do we clean up the river because my house is next to it my neighborhood is next to it right so it it's almost a kind of not in my backyard sort of setup and so the decisions start to start to take place um both in terms of this kind of arbitrary governance but also in this in these in these ways in which we discussed earlier where plans that are already set like what is a river right we've defined what is a river now we have to retrofit what is a river um, into this space so there's a transference of those ideas in some sense but there's also now two three different kinds of political classes who want decisions undertaken and taken different kinds of ways and actually then what happens to political ecology is very 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 i think really interesting because in the, from the 1920s you also get people like mill workers who started because mills are typically next to rivers because you can either release mm. your waste there or you can use them as sources of um, 
you know, energy. So they start to also stake a claim into what their housing should look like. So actually, then the things like the housing question, right? Uh, in from the 1910s onwards, when you know these all these urban planning measures are actually put into place, is something that's really interesting to look at uh, in most of these Indian cities. So this decision making is is a really crucial kind of question. I think the best way that I found to actually look at it is to look at the housing question because people, I'm not sure how interested they are in the broader question of the environment. Then I don't think there's a kind of ecological sensibility, but there's definitely a sensibility about property and what property should look like in different forms, right? And I think that is the way that I really tried to get to some of these questions rather than look at it through the lens of ecology, which then becomes something that you can interpret from the property question. I think it relates back to the question I asked earlier about methods, which is how do you inf- interpret from uh, data that's not very direct, right? It's not data that was not created for the purposes that you are looking at that data for. You might be interested in ecology, but then uh, urban planners of the past were not really very concerned about that, uh, or it was not the dominant focus unless it was relating to how humans could be harmed or benefited. If you need flood control, or if you need a disease control, or if you needed a space that was by the riverside, but something that was protected from floods, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, that that's that's one of the ways that we interpret data from. And I, I'm, I'm glad that we just touched upon that. But going on into, I think, I think I also like the point that you made about how the informal becomes formal in a certain way. I mean, so you you have these subjectivities that determine how we look at a particular resource system of sorts. And how that idea then becomes formalized through the ways we retrofit non-human entities. And I found that a very interesting concept. Would you want to expand a little more on that? So what I meant, I suppose, was two two things. Um, one is to is this question. I mean, this question of continuous retrofitting is something that I've been working with and thinking through. And again, I mean, if we look at the example of um, you know single river, especially, and again, it depends on environment to environment, right? Um, where in the case where you have large dam projects, for instance, or you have railway projects, um, the act of retrofitting is not something that's necessarily considered because these are huge dam projects that are going, that are revenue generating for colonial states. Um, they're revenue generating for post-colonial states. So actually, you can go and flatten environments in ways in which you can't in urban spaces because most of these projects are not revenue generating, right? They're projects that are incremental, that projects that will affect large numbers of people who live around that area. So you can't just dispossess them like you dispossess forest holders. There will be people, even if you do dispossess them, they come back continuously, settle in these areas because homes are not something that you build overnight. You can destroy them, but people come back because of the fact that the city offers certain economic opportunities. You can't police these boundaries continuously in like the ways in which you can police boundaries where people are not looking. So the urban and the city then becomes a very specific kind of space where retrofitting is occurring, right? In my work on the Kaveri, I didn't see retrofitting. I saw what a lot of what was new thinking, mm. right? Thinking that was in some senses fresh, that didn't have necessarily a precedent. And you could do it because of the fact that you continuously constructed that space as a stable space where you could speculate, where you could create, could produce Whereas the urban is not thought of in this way. It's continuously thought about something to try and deal with, to manage, to understand only to the extent that you need to live and not to produce and create. 
right? um, at least in the colonial archive. So therefore, the act of retrofitting then becomes really, really important because what you need to do is not, you're not going to generate large amounts of commercial revenue from creating this small little river um, or, or you know, cleaning up this tank. You're going to just sustain life, right? You're going to sustain life to the extent that it needs to be sustained, but nothing more than that. So that's why I think I found the um, act of retrofitting quite interesting and the concept of retrofitting quite interesting and i've been using it or thinking through it now um, especially in the case of the urban so that that is one way to kind of think about it the second way is not necessarily through the concept of retrofitting but actually to see i think when these water bodies or when when these ecologies really emerge in the archive this is something that i think we touched upon but let me just expand on it in other words you for instance right in the case of the plague and this is something that you might be thinking about the rat is something that is a crucial transmitter right in 90 whether it's in bangalore whether it's in bombay whether it's in rangoon whether it's in south africa whether it's in melbourne all of these cities are affected by the plague and the plague a crucial transmitter of the plague is the rat and the rat needs to move from one place to another in order to because it carries the flea which is which is what carries the um, plague bacilli but the rat is different in each of these places so it needs to be understood as very different but the rat is not investigated in each of these places right <clears throat> the rat is only investigated in some of these places so you get an idea then you get a very very precise almost description of a rat in bombay or in hong kong but you might not get that in bangalore even though i mean maybe you do in bangalore because the plague hit bangalore pretty severely but you might not get that in cochin or you know other cities right so then following the non human depends on how effective or how um how badly they came into contact with with humans right so there's a, there's there are those moments and there are those flashes i guess that's what i meant when you can study certain non humans in certain spaces much more effectively than you can in other spaces right um and these i think i found a concept that um man barua has written about and thought about which is he classifies them i guess in some sense as lively right that you need to think of this as either lively in terms of their um the, in terms of capital or in terms of commodities or in terms of life that it's not a singular it's not sitting um it's not something that can be defined necessarily by humans but it continuously moves it adapts in new environments um it creates ways in which it moves into the circuit of cap what we would call capital accumulation and then moves out of these um, circuits and then comes back into these circuits at a very interesting time so i think to follow it depends on how on on their nature of interactions with humans so that's something that you you need to keep in mind but also can break out of that frame um, in some in some cases but it's a difficult task i think to undertake i find it fascinating as well yeah uh, i think we're nearing to the end of this recording i just was wondering if there's anything that you'd like to ask us or you'd like to yes i would actually like to know where where you're going with your work i think i mentioned that a lot of ronald ross's archives are at the london school of tropical medicine and hygiene um so i'm very interested in how you're thinking about disease how you're thinking about the intersection be- between disease and ecology so if you could tell me and your viewers a little bit about that that would be amazing yeah i'm thinking about it in different ways actually one one of it was what i hinted earlier on uh, which is the idea of how urban planning has evolved in response to disease outbreaks so to speak and what that has meant for social ecological systems like lakes or or water bodies or wells or tanks or soil like you mentioned 
so that's one one aspect of what i'm really interested in yeah no but the other aspect that i've been thinking about is this idea of how do you compare across historical cases to generate more broader insights um the idea being that you've got you've got these rich subjective uh, narrative forms of data that can be used potentially to to generate insights about a landscape or to or to use as sort of a window into how a city has been produced in the present time or or any any space has been produced in the present day so to speak and and how do you then deal with this diverse data and generate insights out of it both of which okay at least the first one at least i know how i could do that but the second one is more of how on earth do we do it <laughs> uh i think that's that's where i'm headed of course i have currently put a little bit of that on a pause because i'm currently employed on a project that looks at community energy in in east africa but these are threads that i'm constantly thinking about as well drawing on my work on bangalore i mean i think the comparative question is so imperative because the outcomes are just radically different i mean even if you compare right and i've been doing some of this work in terms of i haven't actually been comparing but i've done some work in Madras I've done some work in Bangalore I've done some work in Hyderabad in different archives and actually the ecology and the geology is you just think of something like water it's just something very basic like water systems right? one one there's a gravitational system in Madras but it's impossible to have that in Bangalore because of just the topographical nature but that very basic difference um, and I'm, I it's not deterministic mm-hmm. in any which way right you can force your your way through um through gravity gravity using mechanisms of steam pumping or using mechanisms of energy and so on but they re- lead to sort of radically different outcomes in terms of availability of water and i was looking very um, interesting at some interesting maps from the 1970s where, where the department of science and technology produced this beautiful series of maps uh, where they looked at the incidence of disease and the incidence of uh, also the availability of water in different regions across india uh, and you see kind of you actually don't see any correlation there's no way that you can sense the data needs in mind way and i think and i think that was so i just find the comparative question absolutely imperative to as to how we kind of try and figure out his research question so i just yeah i just want to reiterate that i think it's a very and not just within cities within south asia uh, i think that, that you know especially southern africa african context the australian context so many contexts i think you see very similar sort of systems that are set up by british colonialism but very radically different outcomes and i think actually we probably as scholars as historians we haven't done much work across these frameworks which we really should so very glad in some that you're working on it yeah but i i still think it requires a lot of breaking disciplinary barriers which is it's a big thing but yeah thank you so much for joining me today aditya it's been fun talking to you i learned a lot about the non human in the process thank you thanks for listening everyone as always you can find more episodes and blog posts on our website incommonpodcast.org the incommon podcast is the official podcast of the international association for the study of the commons or iasc